Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. I want you to jump over in your Bible to the book of Judges, to the book of Judges. That's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. It's in the Old Testament. It is the seventh book of the Bible. So um, it's after Joshua, before Ruth. I think it's page 439. So you just make your way over there. You'll get there. Um, The title of our series is going to be Breaking the Cycle of Sin. And the title of this sermon, if you like to put down like the different ones, the title of this sermon is... How a meatloaf faith can get you into the cycle of sin. Now, it's going to be up to you at this moment to figure out whether when I say meatloaf, do I mean that conglomeration of meat that your grandmother cooks and then puts it on for 350 a couple hours and serves you and you kind of figure out how to feed it to somebody else? Or am I talking about one of the greatest artists of all time who had some major ballads, uh, rock ballads in the 80s? We'll figure that out. So here's the deal. A lot of the Old Testament, if you're newer to the Bible, basically what the Old Testament is, is there is, it's like telling you the story of the people of Israel, okay? These are God's chosen people, and after Genesis 11, that's really what the Old Testament is talking about, the people of Israel, kind of the main characters in the story, and it's either telling you what happened, or it's kind of reflecting on what's happened to them. So your, your psalms and more of your poetry, stuff like that, kind of reflecting on it. Or it's prophecy telling you what's going to happen to the people of Israel. So they're kind of the main characters. And what you have with the book of Judges is a particularly dark, kind of shady time in Israel's history, okay? I think about it like um, with my own family. We have a, a family Bible on my dad's side that traces, there's a few pages in there, traces our family lineage back into like the 1400s, goes way back, Um, and there's some really great spots in there, right? There's, um, we came over before America was America, came over from Ireland and kind of pioneered the frontier. We got some really cool names that are in um, our family from that era. There's Absalom Shelton, right? There's, then there are a few, about 100 years later, there's George Washington Amos Shelton, and then there's uh, 1685, a guy named Ralph Shelton was born. I was like, wow, Ralph has really lasted for for a long time there. Um, And then you come to the present, and there's some really cool stuff. In our history, we had members of our family volunteer to serve in World War I and to serve in World War II. It was really cool kind of thing to be excited about. But mid-1800s, some shady stuff went down in the Shelton clan, okay? Um, They're on one side of the family. At the same time, you had two cousins get married, okay? And then on another part, branch of the tree, you had an uncle marry a niece, um, and so those branches kind of turned into loops, right? Kind of, it's not good, right? You had a few, um, you had a few births that happened like five months after the wedding, you know, where you see it out there and everything. And so my brother, who's now our family historian, has the Bible. He said, "Like it or not, man, we are descendants of cousin lovers. So you just got to deal with it." That's our, that's our. So here's the deal: Judges is kind of like that shady time in Israel's past. Before Judges, you have Joshua. 
Now, Joshua was the guy that led Israel into the promised land, right? He was the guy that God chose, and he leads them in there. He's this great man of faith coming after Moses, great man of faith, but Judges is going to open with Joshua dying. But you have Joshua, and then after the 330 years where the Judges are ruling, after that, you have the monarchy, King Saul, King David, a man after God's own heart, a really high point in Israel's history in a lot of ways. But in between these really cool spots that we like to remember are this era of the judges where, I, honestly, y'all, what you're going to see and we're going to look through is some of the just, just ugliest, darkest period in all of Israel's history. And what, here's what's happened. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel kind of scattered across the Holy Land, and the idea was They didn't need a ruler. They didn't need a king because God was supposed to be their king. So they were supposed to be able to exist in these 12 tribes, kind of all around working together where they needed to. They would have a protector who would kind of make sure the enemies didn't invade them. But they didn't need a king because God was supposed to be their king. And as long as they obeyed God's law and followed after him, they would be fine. And that would have worked except for one giant problem. The people of Israel did not want to be told what to do. That was their problem. And what you're going to see is that that's what causes all of their downfall. They didn't want to be told what to do. They wanted to do what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, with whoever they wanted to do it with. And we are just like them. So listen, they walked under the banner of the people of God, right? This is, it's almost like they had a split personality, like, we, we're God's people, right? But something inside of them, even though we're God's people and God brought us out from Egypt and everything, even though we're God's people, there's something inside of them that wanted to do what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, with whoever they wanted to do it with, and they did not want to be told by anybody else what they were supposed to do. And the result of that is this book of Judges whose main purpose is to recount for you the self-destructive pattern that the people of God fell into time After time, there are 12 judges, 12 times they fall into over the course of 330 years. I want to show you the pattern. We're going to call it the cycle of sin. I'm going to introduce it to you now, and then it's actually going to be the the structure for reading the first few chapters together. So here's what would happen, right? The first thing that happens in this cycle that gets repeated throughout um, all, all the book of Judges, 21 chapters, it's showing you this cycle. The first thing that happens is that Israel forgets God. They forget the Lord. They forget his works. It's a distant, faded thing that their parents were involved in. They have amnesia. It's spiritual amnesia. That's where it starts. And from forgetting God, which we're going to, again, the text is going to say it time and again, there rose up another generation. They forgot the Lord. They didn't know him, didn't know his works. And then what happens is they disobey God. Well, naturally, because they don't see a reason for obeying the law. The law is all that's left. They've forgotten the the person of God and the works they did. It's all stuff is this empty law. They run away from it. They disobey God, and that leads to disaster. Always, every time, when we disobey God and run after other things, it always is going to end in disaster. That's the way it ends for Israel. So often, the the people, other people groups are going to conquer them. They're going to be enslaved. And then they're in disaster. Eventually they get to a point where they're going to cry out in helplessness. That's going to be the most important probably section of our time this morning is that sense of I cannot get out of this jam that I have put myself in because of my sin, because I forgot God. And then when they finally cry out, seek the Lord, that's when he sends a judge. He sends a deliverer. 
And that's who the judges are in these stories. They are these kind of ruler-savior men and women. Uh, There's one woman, Deborah, who's going to show up in a couple of weeks, who will deliver Israel out of the oppression that they have gotten themselves into. Now, what happens, though, is when they get delivered, the reason this is a cycle is they get delivered, and man, they they go and they go before God and say, God, thank you for getting us out of this jam. We will never, ever worship those gods again. We'll only worship the one true God. And they did for a little while. And then they found themselves back in their sin and back in that disaster. And has that ever happened to you? Have you ever found yourself asking the question, how did I get back here again? Again, right? I I see it. Week to week, some of y'all, there's some weeks where some of y'all come in here, and it's like you are floating on a cloud. You're so close to Jesus, right? Awesome week, everything going great. And the next week you come in here, and you're just slinking along the floor, and you're not sure whether God even exists, right? And you find, how did you get there again? You're in that space where you made a deal with God that if he got you out of that jam, you never touch that stuff again. And you didn't for like three weeks, right? And then you found yourself right back in it. And listen, the book of James says that the Bible is kind of like a mirror and that it shows you your true self. And that's what this book is going to do. That's what this pattern is doing. The the author intentionally repeats over and over and over again. It's showing us our true selves, putting our hearts on display. Over the next five weeks, we're going to look at some of the most dramatic, wild stories in the Bible. And while the deliverer, the judge, is going to be a different person each time, the author makes a really big point to repeat the pattern for 21 chapters also that he can set up in the very last verse how in the world we can finally break free from this cycle of sin. And we're going to get to that freedom as we finish our time today. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the first two chapters this morning. All right, that's the rest of our time uh, this morning is those two chapters. And that cycle is going to kind of be the outline for the the way the author sets this whole thing up. Okay, so you'll see that cycle develop, um, especially in chapter two, but we got to start in chapter one. Here we go. You guys ready? Chapter 1, verse 1? Yeah. Weird. Thank you. Listen, the 9 o'clock was still asleep. You guys are in. I'm glad. Let's get it. Um, Verse 1, after the death of Joshua, and like we said, Joshua is a great man of faith, led Israel into the promised land. If you're newer to the Bible, maybe you've heard some of these stories, though. There's like the battle of Jericho. People walk around the wall seven days, blow some trumpets. Ah, everything else is coming down. That's Joshua leading that group, right? Or you have the, um, the moment where this military leader tells the son, I need you to stand still for a lot longer because we've got to finish the, the war against this foreign nation. Again, that's Joshua. I mean, he is the dude. But before he died, he did not get to finish conquering all of the promised land. That is hugely important this morning, okay? So he got about halfway done, but it wasn't finished, and he's gone. Here comes the rest of Judges 1, 1 and 2. The Israelites then inquire of the Lord, okay, Joshua's gone. Who will be the first to fight for us? That's like, who's our leader first in the battle? Fight for us against the Canaanites. So the Lord answered, Judah's to go. I've handed the land over to him. So great. And things start out great as you keep reading. There's this victory over a foreign king named Adonai Bedzek, who was this real tyrant. You get your first peek into how wild the, and graphic the book of Judges is going to be in verse 6. So when Adonai Bedzek flees, they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes, of course, right? And then Adonai Bedzek says, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. What you see is 
You know, this is what he, this is how he used to humiliate the nations that he conquered. And then he says, God has repaid me for what I've done. So they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Now listen, before I go any further, I want to address, uh, I want to just take a moment to address a problem that people sometimes have with the Old Testament in spots like this. Maybe this is you. The question goes something like, how could a, a loving God send his people on a like war path to conquer another people? That looks like a religious crusade, and those things in world history have been pretty cruel and unjust. And to that, I want to say two things, okay? First, you need to understand that the Canaanites were not innocent people, all right? Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 18 says that God is sending Israel in there to drive out the Canaanites because of their wickedness, their excessive wickedness. Israel was God's instrument to bring judgment upon Canaan. And you might respond to that, well, that's what sounds dangerous, right? Like, isn't that the same mentality that people use to bomb clinics because they think that they are God's instrument to bring judgment on people? Well, here's, that's my second point here is, that's not how God punishes sin anymore. See, when God sent Jesus, he didn't send Jesus on a mission to execute judgment that we deserved on us. He sent Jesus to take the judgment that we deserved, right? He came on a saving mission. So now those who have received the salvation that Jesus gave us from the judgment that we owed, we become a part of that saving mission. And that means just like he sacrificed his life, we sacrifice our lives and lay them down whenever and wherever we can for the sake of others. So anyone who does harm to others in the claim that they are being carrying out the judgment of God is either just outright lying or totally deranged. That's not the Christian faith, and I need you to hear that. Again, there's much more to go into there that we're not going to spend time in this morning, but back into the story we go. Things start well, they're conquering, but then they quickly take a turn. I want, this is my favorite verse of chapter 1. The Lord, this is verse 19. The Lord was with Judah. Every single phrase here matters. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. You see the pretty odd contradiction, right? You got to see it because it starts a chain of contradictions for the rest of the chapter. At first read, it kind of makes sense. I mean, iron chariots, this is actually new warfare tech at the time. The, these, the folks in this region are going to be the first to use iron in warfare like this. So you got like horse-drawn tanks coming at the Israelites, and they got nothing that can compete with that when they look at, at what their technology is that they could be able to, to go into battle with. They just don't have anything that can compete. So the author says, that's why we couldn't drive them out, those iron chariots. Now, what's the problem? <laughs> the problem is the first part of the verse, right? Verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. So, so did the Lord who created the world, flung the stars into the heavens, brought the mountains up out of the sea, separated the heavens from the waters, created mankind, created life. Did he finally meet his match with iron chariots? That's where it was like, oh, didn't see that one coming. I got nothing. Of course not. Of course not. So what is this? What we're getting, y'all, is we're getting Israel's excuse for why they chose to disobey God. They, listen, they followed God's commands until it got too hard. Massively important 
for understanding what's going on there and what I think God wants us to see. They said, we can't do that. We, we can't, that, that's, that's too hard. What they really meant was, we won't do that. They would do anything for God, but they won't do that. That's all right. It's a meatloaf faith, right? I would do anything, just replace love with God. This is Israel, and this so often is us. I would do anything for God. I, I believe, you know, I'm a Christian. I fall under the, the people of God banner. I do anything for God, but I won't do that. You know, like that's what you're, you're kind of like, whoa, that's too far. What God's calling me there to might be too much. Listen, what you're going to see is the other tribes following suit. Look verse 21. Same time, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. That they were called to, but they didn't. The Jebusites have lived among the Benjamites in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 27, Manasseh failed to take possession of Beth Shean and Tanakh or the residents of Dor and Ibleam and Megiddo and Asgard and Han Solo. No, that's not what it, but just these are real people. I know the, the words are just something you're not used to, but these are real people groups. And the Canaanites, look at the way it ends. The Canaanites were determined to stay in this land. <laughs> Another word for that would be stubborn. You could also translate that way. The Canaanites are stubborn. God, we were going to kick them out. We're going to do what you said. And we politely asked them to leave, but they didn't. And they were stubborn, so we stopped there. That's what justifies disobeying God and leaving them in the land. In fact, verse 28, they keep justifying themselves. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites service forced labor, but never drove them out completely. We got free labor out of it, God. That's a good thing, right? It's not like they're ruling over us or anything. We rule over them. Come on. Hey, have you ever tried to justify your disobedience to God by highlighting the supposed good that it's doing in your life and maybe in the life of others? Like some kind of compromise that makes it okay? You know, I, I shouldn't be gossiping, but hey, now we can both pray for him or her, right? I know God says we shouldn't be sleeping together, but... But I got to learn if we're really compatible, and this will save me a lot of trouble later in life. I know God says that we're to be generous with our finances, but retirement's getting near. I got to save right now, so let's not be crazy about it, God. I know I'm supposed to lead my family towards knowing God and towards a, 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 just a spirit of worship of God, but these activities that they get to do every weekend are going to be memory makers for the rest of their lives. That's a good thing, right? We all do this. Y'all, we all compromise God's commands and we expect him to shrug his shoulders and say, hey, no big deal. I know that God said drive out the Canaanites completely, but hey, God, isn't this working better for us? I'm sure it's okay. Here's what I want you to grab out of chapter one. Small compromises lead to great disasters. I want you to grab hold of that. You may not see it at first, but that is the author's point of telling us why all these people groups didn't do what they were supposed to do. It's because of what's coming in chapter 21. Y'all, chapter 20, chapters, I wish I could tell you the story, uh, like 18 through 21, it is depraved and, and just a lot of terrible stuff that the people of God do because they think it's right and what they're supposed to do. This book covers 330 years. You may not see the full disaster of your sin immediately. You may not even see it in your lifetime. But I promise you, if that last generation in the book of Judges could go back to the first generation, they would plead, please, don't compromise on what God has called you to do here. Because you don't see it now, 
but it is going to wreak havoc for generations to come. And in fact, the book of Judges ends really sad. We'll see the ending of that today. Listen to me. The greatest danger, I think, to our faith is not atheism. It's that we ask God to coexist with our idols. You understand that? Because that's massively important in the area that we live in, where there's still a remnant of the Bible belt. It's not that we say, I don't believe any of it anymore. Sometimes that happens. But I think the danger for a lot of us is that we say, hey, God, I just need you to you know, I'm going to go under the banner of Christianity. I'll check that off on the box at the polling booth, etc. But I need you to kind of be okay with some things that I want to do because I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. Y'all, that right there, that's the story of the people of Israel through this book. And the end is tragedy. Now, the, in chapter two, the author goes through the cycle of sin. All right, so we're going to use that cycle as the outline to walk through chapter two, okay? Um, it begins with amnesia. That's the first, I don't know if you call it a step, part, whatever. That's the, the first thing we see in the, in the book here. What we're going to see time and again is that something very subtle but extremely powerful happens to the collective psyche of the people of Israel. Something that somehow makes disobedience to God seem like an attractive thing to, to the people of God. Right, like to the people who, think about it, translate it here forward to us. The people who have come out of the baptism waters, celebrating their salvation, that very person gets to a point where running away from God and disobeying God seems like something really good that they can't wait to do. So what happens? How does someone go from there to running, to hardening their heart and running away from God? It's amnesia. Listen, verse 8 of chapter 2, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died. We said that at age of 110. After them, another generation rose up, look at it, who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. Sometimes, some time goes by. Everything's peaceful. During that time, there were the people that had experienced God's deliverance, and they had celebrated it but then they stopped talking about it. And it really didn't seem to matter. So what did they have left? The only thing they had left was the law. And so when all you have left is a bunch of religious rules and you don't have a relationship with the one who provided the rules and you don't have a memory of how that one rescued you when you were stuck in disaster without any need and all you have is a bunch of rules, that's empty religion. And it never lasts. It never lasts. And that's what we see. This always is what comes before disobedience. Think about it this way. Amnesia is what leads to apostasy, to running away from God. When we think we don't need God, we forget him. How else? How else does that happen? When, when we baptize someone, are you willing to go wherever God calls you to go, do whatever he tells you to do? How do you get to, I don't want to do that anymore? It's amnesia. How else does that happen? They forget how desperately their lives depend on God's grace each day. Listen, the Christian gospel message is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not what it is, that you just do this one time, pray this prayer, say this thing, and then you're good. No, it is not only here's how you can be saved from judgment, but here's how you can be sustained in your life every single day. Your heart and my heart, that theologians have used different metaphors throughout the years. We'll just use a, a current one that we'll all understand. Think of a car that is 
just really out of alignment. That's my Hyundai Sonata right now. That joker is in trouble, okay? And so if I let go of the wheel, that thing has about, I don't know, a second and a half, and then we are going left, depending on where we are going into a wall, we're going into a ditch, whatever's left, that's where we are headed, okay? That is your heart and my heart, right? Our hearts are so prone, even when we profess faith in Christ, walking us still our hearts affected by sin, so easily drift back to those things that promise pleasure but deliver pain. Oh, we so easily go, so what do we need? We need God's, we need God to sustain us today. Today. Listen, this is probably my, my biggest thing that I want us to pull away from this, this whole series. Biggest thing is a desperate faith that awakens in you a daily devotion to the Lord. Desperate. God, I need you. We're talking about this at the end of our time today. God, I need you. I'm desperate. Parents, I'm probably talking to you more than anybody else right now because I think that's what Judges is doing. What kind of faith in Christ are your children inheriting from you? Because if all they inherit is a passion about sports and passivity about God, they will see no need for God in their lives. They will see your religion as a bunch of empty rules, and they won't want to follow them, and they will run hard. And that's why, listen, over the past 10 years, the number of people in our city, the city of Charlotte, that classify themselves as irreligious, they're called the the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, right? I have no religion. The number of people in Charlotte that say, I have no religion, has doubled in the past 10 years in the Bible Belt. Why is that? Listen, their parents were passively religious, and created over a generation spiritual amnesia. That's what's happening in Judges. So parents, maybe this is a question for your car ride home. What kind of faith are your children inheriting from you? How would your children describe your faith? And you, you might need to talk about what kind of faith you inherited, because I bet that'll play a big part in how you're practicing it today. Listen, my whole point is all of us have to be desperate for the Lord today, each day, and only when we're there will you spare yourself and those you love disaster. But I'm going to get ahead of myself. So Israel forgets God. Next thing that happens, they disobey. That's the second step in this cycle of, diso- cycle of sin is disobedience. Verse 11, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of Egypt, right? The, the Lord and the works that he had done, the authors reciting them. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples, the peoples they didn't drive out and bowed down to them. They abandoned faith in a God they didn't see a big need for anyway. They chose to do what they wanted, when they wanted, with whom they wanted, because what's really going to happen anyways? Big whoops, just a bunch of empty rules anyways. Why be constrained by the religion of their parents? Y'all, this book is retelling a time where God's people faced the daily choice, daily choice of choosing whether to follow the Lord or follow the spirits and preferences of their age. And it's telling you how they mainly failed in this task, how they constantly turned from knowing loving and obeying God to doing what the very last verse of the book is going to say, to doing what was right in their own eyes. Look, in these two verses that we have up here, we just had up there, there's a very, very deep human truth on display. When Israel stopped worshiping the Lord, they still worshiped something. That's us. Humans are worshipers. We never really choose between God and no God, really. We think we do, but because we are fundamentally worshipers, we will worship something. Whatever controls you, whatever controls your emotions, whatever controls your decision-making, whatever controls your anxieties, you worship it. 
And my promise is that unless you worship the one true God, your false God will promise pleasure and deliver pain. Money will promise freedom. It will deliver anxiety. Sexual promiscuity and porn will promise fulfillment. It will leave you enslaved to it and empty. Building a reputation promises that it will deliver you power and prestige. But what happens? you got to spend all of your time and energy checking on it and making sure it's going okay and that nothing's happening to it. You are constantly managing it and worrying about it. That's not the life of a free person. That's the life of someone who's enslaved to something. And that leads right to what happens next in the cycle of sin. Disaster. Verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to enemies around them. They could no longer resist their enemies. When the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. This whole promise and sworn to them, that's uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. The Lord said, okay, you want to keep the Canaanites in the land? I'm going to let you keep them in the land. They're going to be a thorn in your side. And now this is coming home to roost, so to say. And maybe that's where you are right now. Your sin has come back on you and you're experiencing the pain of it. Listen, I hope in some measure, I don't know where you are, but if it's your own sin that has caused you to be in a spot of pain where you are, I hope in some measure that you'll see that pain is actually God's grace on you. It's God's grace on you. God's mercy was to use these foreign nations as a means to drive Israel back to him, back to dependence on him. And if you're hurting right now, if you're here in church because you're like, man, I need some help. I've made a disaster of my life. You've wrecked your family, your job. Maybe you've wrecked a friendship. Maybe your future is looking pretty bleak because of some decisions that you have made recently and you're causing a storm right now. Whatever it is, I want you to see what happens next in this cycle. And that's helplessness. When Israel suffered greatly, when they finally got to the end of their rope, this is the most important one. I feel like in so many ways today, they cried out to God. And I want you to hear God's word right now. This is so important for some of you, specifically right now. This is Judges 2.18. The Lord was moved to pity. Another word for that is compassion. Whenever they groaned, you know, they're going to groan 12 different times in this, this cycle of sin, these 330 years. Whenever they groan because of those who are oppressing and afflicting them. Listen to me. The story of judges, of these judges, and what it seems like up to this point, I know you probably felt the, the kind of a bleak story. The story of judges is actually the story of a God whose mercy goes farther than your sin. You get the hope that is in there for you this morning? The, the hope of judges is that there is a God whose mercy goes further than the disaster that your sin has caused. And that he can actually redeem you forgive you, and restore you, that there is actually hope even for you. Y'all, we are, in Judges, we're going to see that we are Israel. We are a messed up bunch of people. Now, most of us are pretty good at covering that up, but you just get to know, you got to do is pull the lid up a little bit. There's some crazy happening in, all, in a lot of people's lives, okay? And what you're going to see is that God's mercy is greater than that. Every single time, every time Israel cries out, in the midst of the disaster that they caused because of their disobedience, because they forgot God, still God their Father answers them. 
So I want to say this, in this whole cycle, this is the most important spot for you to get in. Because a person, listen, stubbornly running from God and enjoying their sin, there's no hope for them. There's future pain. But when they come to the end of themselves, when you are desperate for God, right there, that's when he can work. Spiritual maturity, we talk about that sometimes in church world. Here's all it is. It's getting to a place more and more where you realize you are helpless apart from God's grace in your life today. And the way it ends up happening is that the Christian life becomes this interplay of prayer where you're voicing that need, that helplessness, right? And that I'm crying out to you. And then obedience, which is just kind of trusting that God knows better than me now. I'm going to step out trusting that God knows better than me what's good for me. And when there's that interplay of prayer, of helplessness, and then trust in obeying him, that's where joy in the Christian life is. That's where it is. And that's what we're going to see today. Today, you can cry out. I want some of you to hear today. Whatever's going on, it's not too late for you. Actually, leads to the last part of the cycle, deliverance. God hears his people cry out. He's moved because he's a father who loves his children. He's moved to compassion. And so, verse 16 of chapter 2, the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of the marauders. Because some of you know the power, the power of that sin that it can have over you. And he saved them. The judges are kind of like savior rulers. Their job, get Israel out of the mess, get them back on track again. And we're going to see some awesome stories. I mean, next week we're going to be in Ahud. That dude stabs a really fat guy and then some really wild stuff ensues from that. I was telling my eight and nine-year-old sons a story. They were laughing their heads off. And we got a bunch of other stories, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, wild, some of the wildest stuff in the Bible. And my question that I kind of realized as I was reading through this is, how? Now, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. If God saved them so vividly, right, like some wild stories, the way God very clearly saves Israel, how do they get back there again? How do they get stuck in this cycle with such vivid, clear salvation at the hand of the Lord? This is verse 17. They did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods. And the, the Hebrew translation for prostitute is prostitute. It's, uh, we're not going to shrink back from what they're saying Israel did. That's the way the Lord talks about what they did, bowing down to them. The things that they said, remember they said the Canaanites? No, the Canaanites bow down to us and serve us, but what ends up happening? They end up bowing down and serving the things that they thought were serving them. That is so true about your sin and mine. I feel like I have another sermon going on there. All right. They quickly turned away from the way of their fathers who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up, watch this, raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. In other words, the people were desperate for God to get them out of their distress. Sound familiar? God, please get me out of this jam. I will, I will move into a convent if you can just save me from this thing. I'll get up every morning. I'll memorize the Bible, 5 a.m. in the original Greek, and you did that for four days, and you were done, and right back in you go into the cycle. Amnesia sets in like it did for Israel. As long as their judge, their savior was alive, the people were in harmony with God. But when the judge died, catch that? That's when amnesia sets in. That's when faith went from active dependence to a, a memory, and around we go. Now listen, I want to issue you one warning before I tell you how to break free from this cycle of sin. And that's that this cycle isn't really a cycle. It's a spiral. Because what you're going to see is that each time around the cycle, their sin gets darker 
and more depraved. The disasters affect more and more people. And I say that because some of you are having fun in your sin, presuming on God's grace being there whenever you finally get to a point that you'd like to, to take that get out of hell free card and cash it in. And do not presume on God's grace. That's you hardening your heart to God and you may not find the reason you won't find his grace at the end of that is not because he's not willing, but because you've hardened your heart so much that you may never want to come back to him ever. Don't play with grace. But here's how you break the cycle of sin. I want to show you the very last verse of Judges. I believe it holds the key to what we need to break free from it, this cycle that we all fall victim to. Israel just committed the most heinous and all of their crime, all of their kind of debauchery and their, their disasters and disobedience. That's really chapters 18 to 21, and it ends... Though, they end in the disaster with no cry. No cry for, for help. It's, it's a sad ending. Here's what it says, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. If you have an ESV, it's everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Everyone was just doing what they wanted, when they wanted, with who they wanted. They raped, they kidnapped, they committed genocide, all because it seemed right to the people of God. This place was a mess. And the author gives us a clue that the only thing that can save Israel now is a king. How do you break the cycle of sin? The only way is to believe desperately in a king that actually has power over death. In a savior that won't die on you. You see what Judges is doing? It's setting you and I up. The whole thing, it's not finishing with a, a nice tied-off bow, cute little story, everybody rides off on a unicorn or something. It's not what happens. It's ruin. And the author just mentions it, just a little comment, one verse of commentary at the end. There's no king in Israel. The judges couldn't save Israel because they were only human. It would take a king. But what we know is not even a human king because a king's coming named David. David's going to die too. <laughs> the only hope is in a king that cannot die, a king that has the power to break the cycle and the power over death. The book of Judges is showing you and I the insufficiency of false gods and the insufficiency of even good things in our lives that can truly and finally set us free from sin. All of the judges die on God's people. But listen, Jesus dies for God's people. All of the judges that we're going to read about, their final destination is the grave. For Jesus, the grave is a three-day pit stop before he defeats death, gets up out of the grave. And listen to me, he's still alive today. And if he's still alive today, then what the book of Judges tells us is that we don't have to have amnesia drifting back into our sin because he's broken that cycle because the judge is still alive, which means we are still reconciled to God today. Today. It's only one thing that can save you from the cycle of sin that you're in. Today, you have to desperately cling to the God of your salvation, to the one who has power to save you. The author of Hebrews, I'll close with this, describes, describes this just sort of the way the Christian life should look like in a verse, Hebrews 10, 23. And he says, in light of what's happened, Hebrews 10, it starts in verse 19. It's really the turn of the whole letter to Hebrews. It starts in verse 19. Therefore, because we have a great high priest over the throne of God who's made a way, a new and living way for us to access God. Basically, because Jesus died for us, for our sin, we now have a way to know God. So then what does the people of God collectively do? It says, therefore, let us hold on, cling fast to the confession of 
of our hope without wavering. Why? The confession of our hope is the gospel, right? That Jesus died for us. Not because we will be faithful to it. No, no, we keep going in that cycle. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. The one who promised that he will die for us, that our sins are paid for by his blood, is going to be faithful to that promise, which means that salvation is permanent for us. And we will be reconciled to God. Our Heavenly Father forgives us, brings us back to himself, and secures us forevermore. Is that where you are today? Are you desperate for the Lord's grace today on your life? That's why we, you know, so we were like, you got to get up in the morning and spend time with the Lord. It's not about your... I don't care when you do it in terms of like, well, that's what works for my schedule. No, no. You just need to realize that this morning you desperately need the Lord. Desperately need the Lord today.